0: Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos. Welcome to this special episode where it is griddle and conversation. And we got some interesting topics coming up. I'm Pastor Mike Proctor and there are two others with us out here in the shade today. I'm Pastor
1: Amanda Sparrow.
2: And I'm the griddler. (laughs) Actually, no, I'm Pastor J. Dylan Proctor. But we're going to be I can't speak. We're going to be talking about a lot of fun stuff today. I've got some crazy questions about some mysteries from the Bible. And this is really in the vein of cryptids. You know, things like Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the Chupacabra. Is there anything left with cherubims, angels, demons in the world around us? I'm going to be asking Pastor Amanda and Pastor Mike some questions while I'm griddling. I'm going to be over there doing the griddler. I might come up with some interesting jokes. (laughs) I've already made some Philly cheesesteaks for him, so we're just going to be having a good time. Let's jump into it. All right. Actually, Batman's foe, the griddler. (laughs) The griddler. Well, you know, there's a lot of people in church history whose foe might be the griddler. Um, St. Lawrence was unfortunately killed on a grill.
1: Mm.
2: Question number one, you ready for this? All right. I'm ready. When we look to the book of Revelation, it's obviously something which moves John towards the future. He sees the day of judgment, which hasn't yet happened. Well, we oftentimes wonder about time travel too. We oftentimes say to ourselves, you know, I really wish God, I could go back in five minutes And not have hit that deer, had that flat tire. You know, I had this temptation to go out and buy something I shouldn't have. Mm -hmm. I I looked at something on the internet that I shouldn't have. I did something that I regret now. We wish we could go back in time, but yet salvation doesn't really work just like a time machine. Well, how do we square that with something like the book of Revelation? Is time travel an element of that book or not? Y'all give me a rating on that on the scale of 0 to 25 and then make your case.
1: Okay. Well... Alright, so let's, let's, I think you asked like three different questions, so I'm going to work backwards. Your most recent question was to rate Revelation, see if it has time travel in it. I think I'm going to go with um, a 20 on that, because I do think there is some element of time travel there, because the book does move us into a very apocalyptic kind of state, where the prophetic voice really just looks at the world, the current state of affairs, and says, alright, cause and effect, this is what's going to happen in the future, if you do A, you'll get B. But John's revelation really takes us a step further in that, and we, we do see cause and effect, but it is so much uh, more fantastical than anything we've seen, um, maybe other than in the book of Daniel. But this is really kind of beyond the realms of, of normalcy. And, so, and it is, of course, happening in the future, but also the present. So that's why I think I'm going to go with the 20, because there is some present and uh, past things that are happening, but also very futuristic things. Uh, so it does move us across time and space. And ultimately, though, it is that God uh, exists first and foremost, and time actually exists within God instead of God existing within time. Hmm. So,
0: what
1: was so I said a 20. You're saying a 20?
0: Yes. I'm going to go with the 22. There's a couple things there that I think is, uh, first of all, like Pastor Amanda said, God does it, it, you know, God's natural laws such as gravity and all of those things and even time, God is is the creator of those things, and God is ever present. And so, one of the things that we know about Scripture, especially with um, our canon, is that everything is is contained therein to give us understanding of salvation and what we need to to do, or or what we need to trust, or how we need to um, express our faith and to live in a right way. Uh, And so with that, the salvation is often best understood as past, present, and future. There may be that past moment where we receive. Obviously, the work of Christ Jesus on the cross is a past tense for us. But then there is this understanding that we need to seize the day, uh, the Latin carpe diem, where we seize the moment. We live in the present. And there's also in the book of Revelation that look and that glimpse of the kingdom of God where there is no more pain, no more tears, where God wipes away the tears of those who have suffered and all of these things that we see, this beautiful imagery. And then there's this also, I think for, for all our scripture, we must understand that it is relevant to the time and people that it was written Two immediately the Mm -hmm. the first century and so not only is it you know very much present for them rome really does reflect revelation but we can also look at the world around us and see that reflecting that right now so yes past present and future i'm going to give it a 22
3: Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills. I'm glad we can be together today. Today's lesson comes from Genesis chapter 18. We find here one of the most extraordinary events in the life of Abraham. We find Abraham bargaining with God. Before we get into our lesson, however, let's bow our heads for prayer. I want us to pray together the prayer that Paul prayed for the Philippians, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. Amen. Everyone likes a bargain, right? But sometimes, bargains aren't really bargains. I've heard a bargain defined as something you don't need, but at a price you can't resist. Now, we usually like bargains, but we don't like to actually bargain itself. The process of bargaining. Many people do not like buying a car for this reason. They don't want to haggle with the car salesman. But, what if you were negotiating, not with another man, but with God Himself? And this is where Abraham finds himself today. Our text comes from Genesis chapter 18. We're going to be looking at verses 16 through 33. Now, prior to this, Abraham is sitting at the entrance to his tent. And he finds himself visited by three men. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly who these men are, if they're actual men, if they're angels, but it does tell us that the Lord is present there. So we don't know if the Lord is present in addition to these three uh, beings, if the Lord is one of the beings. Many people feel like that one of these men is actually uh, an incarnation of Jesus Christ himself. Uh, but we don't really know. All we know is the Lord is present there. Well, Abraham is very hospitable. He fixes a meal for these men. He has them to eat. And they confirm that within a year, Sarah will give birth to a son. Abraham will finally have his son Isaac. And then they get ready to leave. Now, as they begin to leave, Abraham walks with them towards Sodom. And the Lord reveals to Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah has been so great that it has come to his attention. And the Lord is going down to see if the reports are as grievous as he has heard. And the unspoken assumption is if things are truly this bad, then Sodom and Gomorrah will be destroyed. Now, the three men continue on towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And this is where we find uh, one of the most curious incidents in Scripture. Abraham begins to bargain with God. He tells him, If you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, will you destroy the righteous along with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom? Will you go ahead and destroy them all? That's not right. That's not what you should be doing. And so God answers and says, Okay, if there are 50 righteous people, I will not destroy it. I will spare the entire city. But Abraham doesn't stop. He goes on to say, Well, what about 45? What if they can't find quite 50, but they come up with 45? Would you destroy it for lacking only five? And God says, No, for 45, I will not destroy it. I will spare the city. And this cycle repeats. Abraham argues, well, what about 40? And God agrees. Abraham comes back, what about 30? And again, God agrees. Abraham comes back again, well, 20. Will you spare the city for 20? And God agrees. And then Abraham speaks one last time. And he says, what about 10? What if only 10 righteous people can be found in that whole city? Will you spare it? And God says, yes, if we can find 10 righteous people there, I will spare it. And then the Lord leaves and Abraham returns to his home. Now, the question that comes up, does God really change his mind here? Can we change God's mind? Can we persuade God to do something that he wasn't intending to do in the first place? Now, We look at that question and we automatically think, no, you know, God is sovereign. God has perfect knowledge. His will is perfect. God is going to do what God is going to do. But there are interesting uh, episodes in Scripture where a man or a woman seemed to change the mind of God himself. We find this in the case of Moses. After the children of Israel had sinned against God, God told Moses, I'm going to destroy all of them, and I will start over with you, make a new people. And Moses convinces God, no, don't do that. Spare the people, continue to go with us. And then in the New Testament, we find an interesting episode with Jesus and his mother. At the wedding in Cana, Mary comes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And Jesus says to her, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Don't involve me in this process. But Mary continues to basically insist that Jesus do something. And he does. He turns the water into wine. So we see these episodes where man seems to impact God himself. Now, our text begins with God speaking to himself. God asked himself, should I tell Abraham what is going on here, what I'm going to do? Now, God had a purpose for Abraham. He he was going to change Abraham into a great nation. Not only for Abraham's sake, but through Abraham, all the nations on, on earth would be blessed. But this would require that Abraham direct his children and his household to keep the way of the Lord, to do what was right and just. This would be necessary if God were going to carry out His promises for Abraham. Now, if Abraham was going to do this, he needed to know who God was. And so, in this episode, God is inviting Abraham to test him out. I think this bargaining session is a way for Abraham to kind of feel God out, to understand. What is God really like? And it's also a way for God to fill out Abraham. God is kind of, of testing Abraham's depths here, testing his metal, seeing what Abraham is made of. Now, what we learn from this interplay between Abraham and God is what it means for man to be in relationship with God. We learn something about God's full plan for man the redemption of man, the restoration of mankind back into a relationship. You remember, this relationship had been there at the beginning, but then it had been ruined through Adam and Eve and their sin. But God was was determined to restore this relationship. It would begin with Abraham. It would go on through his family who would be made into the nation of Israel. Ultimately, it would extend to all the nations on earth. So, in this relationship, what can man be sure of in regard to God? What does God look for and value in man? What does God intend for this relationship to be? And all of these lessons come up in this incident with Abraham, with Abraham bargains with God. Now, I want to split this lesson into two Sundays. But today, I want to look at what does this incident tell us about the nature of the relationship between God and man. When we read Scripture or study Scripture, we have to keep that in mind. Scripture was written for a reason. These things are put into the Bible for our understanding. God has a message for us. And so, it's often helpful to ask ourselves, What does this incident, what does it tell us about God? What does it tell us about man? What does it tell us about their relationship? And so here, we learn several things about the nature of the relationship between God and man. First, we learn that we have a God who takes the initiative. God is one who reveals Himself to us, who desires for us to know Him. Now, This incident begins with God speaking to himself, but allowing Abraham to listen in. Abraham is made privy to the thoughts of God. and Think of how amazing this is. We've studied the essence of God's holiness, the idea that God is completely other. He cannot be defined. We can't figure God out. He's in a class, a category, all to himself. God is unlike anything that we've ever known or that we can even imagine. Karen Armstrong has written a number of books about religion, and she talks about how we view God, that we cannot know God except through revelation, through what God reveals to us. The good news is God is a God who reveals himself. God seeks to be known by man. And we have two primary ways in which God has revealed himself to us. Through his written word, the scripture, and through his living word, through the spirit. But the sad truth, we often ignore what God reveals to us. We fail to value God's revelation of himself. You know, we often assume that a knowledge of God should come easily to us. It should be something that we kind of automatically or intuitively grasp. Now, we don't assume that anyone can pick up a book about advanced physics or math or computers and easily understand the ideas. But somehow, we assume that knowledge about God should be just common sense, something we intuitively grasp. Karen Armstrong, I mentioned her a little bit earlier, she said that uh, many people will approach her on one of the books she's written about God. And they'll say, that book was really hard, as if they're reproaching her. And she writes, I want to reply, of course it was hard. It was about God. We don't assume these other knowledge, types of knowledge are going to be easy, but we assume religious knowledge should be. And the result, as Karen Armstrong describes it, despite our scientific and technological brilliance, Our religious thinking is remarkably undeveloped, even primitive. And there are real-world consequences to not understanding who God is. Kelly Capick writes, Our concepts about the divine inform our lives more deeply than most people can trace. Whether we view God as distant or near, as gracious or capricious, as concerned or apathetic, the conclusions we reach guide our lives. When we don't understand God's revelation of Himself, we end up with a God shaped in our own image. Really, we end up with an idol, a false God. But here we see it's God who takes the initiative. A God who reaches out to us. In other words, a God of prevenient grace. John six forty four tells us, No one can come to me, that is, to Jesus, unless the Father who sent me draws them. As Wesleyans, we emphasize this doctrine of provenient grace. Now, what we understand from this is God is preparing us for salvation. God is preparing us to know Him far before we ever actually come to Him in repentance. God begins to shower His grace upon us. The Methodist book of Discipline uh, tells us that grace pervades creation. Grace is not just a periodic gift that God bestows, but grace is God's presence itself, His presence that creates and heals and forgives and reconciles. Kenneth Carter writes, Wherever God is present, there is grace But provenient grace is God continually pulling us toward Himself and a continual pulling toward all that we can be in God. It's this pull toward God that prevents the total destruction of the divine image that we were created in. I like to use a lot of times the translation called the message. And it's interesting, there's an episode from Corinthians where It reads, Starting from scratch, God made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find Him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote. He's near. We live and move in Him. We cannot get away from Him. As the New International Version has Paul quote it, God is one in whom we live and move and have our being. Now, from this incident with Abraham, we also learn that it's possible for man and God to have an intimate relationship, a relationship in which man and God feel at ease in each other's company. Now, a relationship like this is unimaginable to many. It was unimaginable to many in ancient times and today as well. Think of the Israelites. When they received the law at Mount Sinai, the first ten commandments were given to Moses in the presence of the people. They heard God speak to Moses and give him these commands. But the presence of God was so terrifying that they could not face this. Numbers 20, verses 18 to 19 When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And then verse 21 reads, The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. So the people tell Moses, Look, we we cannot take this hearing directly from God. You go to God. You come back then and tell us what God wants. Einstein was one of the most well-known scientists of the, the last century. And Einstein believed in God. He saw too much order and beauty in this physical universe to doubt that there was such a thing as God, a superior being that was behind all of this. But Einstein could not bring himself to imagine a personal God, one who would actually enter a relationship with man. But this is what we see in this case. Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem where he said, "Oh, East is East, and West is West, and never the twain shall meet. Now, he was referring to how the customs of the East and the West were so different, neither side would be able to understand each other. But many would make this same comparison between God and man. Man is man, and God is God, and never the twain shall meet. But this is not what we see in this incident with Abraham. We see a closeness between God and Abraham. A a closeness demonstrated in several ways. First of all, it describes Abraham as God's friend. There are three times that Scripture, based on this passage, refers to Abraham as the friend of God. 2 Chronicles 27, Jehoshaphat is praying, and he refers to the people of Israel as the descendants of Abraham, your friend. James 2.23, God himself refers to Abraham as a friend. It reads, And he, Abraham, was called God's friend. Now, we see this friendship in the idea that God reveals his thoughts to Abraham. God allows Abraham to know what he's thinking. It's our closest friends, our most intimate friends, that we reveal what we are really thinking. Most people, when they ask us a question about what we're thinking or what we're feeling, they will get kind of a stock response. But to our friends, we let our guard down. We share our innermost feelings. Here, God is revealing His intimate self to Abraham. The only other man that's given this title of friend of God is Moses. In Exodus 33:11, Scripture tells us, God spoke to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Imagine uh, that for God Himself, referring to you as my friend. Jesus told His disciples, John 15, 15, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. The idea is the disciples were to go beyond being servants to being actual friends. The goal of all spiritual formation is to be God's friend. Now, think of a parent-child relationship. In this relationship, the parent gives instructions the child is supposed to obey. The parent often doesn't explain why. The, The parent simply says, because I said so. But, that's not the case between friends. Now, We also see the closeness between God and Abraham demonstrated in the fact that Abraham feels free to argue with God, to bargain. They are at ease in each other's company. You can contrast this with Noah's response. You remember, earlier in Genesis, God told Noah, I am going to put an end to all of mankind to wipe them off the face of the earth. Only you, your wife, your sons, and their wives... You will be the only one saved in the ark. And it's interesting. Noah's response, he did everything as God commanded him. Genesis 6:22, And Noah is to be commended for obeying God. But it, it's interesting that Noah makes no attempt to, to bargain with God, to change God's mind about this. But we find Abraham and God in conversation, in dialogue, In a relationship that goes both ways. Now, for God to impact Abraham, that's what you would expect. It's what we would think of God, the terms we would think of, that God impacts man. But for Abraham to impact God, for Abraham to have an effect upon God, this is something totally unexpected. This relationship between God and man can be so close, so intimate as to be a true give-and-take, a two-way communication. Now, the idea of an intimate relationship with God, a friendship, may come as a shock to us. Evangelical Christians, especially holiness denominations, we generally tend to define our relationship to God in terms of our obedience and service. We believe that God is most pleased with us when we perform excellently, when we give an a obedience and service that's impeccable. So a lot of times we kind of think of ourselves as God's right-hand man, being faithful to carry out God's exact orders. Our perspective is similar to that of the older son in the parable of the prodigal. You remember this story that Jesus told of two brothers, the youngest brother, the one who took the father's inheritance and went out and wasted it. But then he returns to his father and his father rejoices to see him come back. The older brother, though, he was one who remained at home. He was the faithful, dutiful son. He reminds his father, Luke 11:29, These many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Now, When we look at this story, we often see ourselves in the role of the older brother. This is what God wants from us, a relationship in which we are faithful and obedient. And that is true. But in the end, the truest relationship was not between the father and the older, dutiful, obedient son, but it was between the father and the repentant prodigal who had come home. John Piper writes, The Christian Gospel is not a help wanted sign. Acts 17:25 reminds us God is not served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. The gospels are not a help wanted sign. God did not create us so that he would have a willing supply of labor. He didn't need faithful servants to carry out his plans. God created us to love us, to have us love and delight in Him in return. In other words, God created us to be His friends. How does our relationship with God change when we fully realize this, that God desires an intimacy with us? What happens when we seek an intimate relationship with God rather than one just of obedience and dutiful service? Finally, we learn from this interaction between God and man. Any relationship with God has to involve justice. Now, here we see God taking the initiative to seek out man, but we also see God bringing judgment. We would prefer to think of God only in terms of love and friendship, but throughout Scripture, there are times when God steps in to provide judgment. The simple fact is God's holiness requires judgment. God cannot allow sin to go unchallenged and remain holy because sin is rebellion against God. It's usurping God's authority, challenging His sovereignty. God's holiness requires that He be the only. Although God provides many opportunities for man to give up his rebellion, If man continues to rebel, there's only one outcome, and that is judgment. It's interesting, in teaching, and I spent many years as a teacher, we use two forms of assessment for students. When we sit down and we judge a student's progress. Now, we use what's called formative assessment. And this is to help the student recognize where they stand, if they're going wrong, what they understand and what they don't understand. It gives them the opportunity to make corrections. But there's also a summative assessment, an assessment given usually at the end of the term where a final grade is given to determine is the student ready to move to the next level or not. Now, we see God giving this formative judgment all the time where God is is judging us in order to discipline, to bring us to himself. But the Bible makes it clear, there are also times when God uses summative judgment, when God steps in to make a final assessment, who has made the grade and who has not. In this scripture, the Lord says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great. When we read this, we have to ask ourselves, Who is making this outcry? From the experience that the angels later have when they go to rescue Lot, we see the true evil of the men of Sodom. We see how they treat outsiders. Now, to come into contact with such evil people would inevitably cause suffering. There would have to be people in this area who are being harmed and abused by these evil men of Sodom. When God confronts Cain after Cain has killed Abel, God tells Cain, Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God cannot ignore the suffering brought upon the innocent. God is aware, and even though He often delays judgment to give men time to repent, He is not ignoring the suffering of the innocent. We see God's prevenient grace We see God taking the initiative to seek us out. We see God's long-suffering patience with us. But we have to realize there comes a point when judgment is the only option left. God's holiness will not allow rebellion to go against Him unchecked. It's interesting when we look at this, uh, this incident. There's no talk of here about the people of Sodom repenting. God doesn't offer an opportunity to repent. Abraham doesn't ask God for a chance for the people to repent. Both of them seem to recognize that this situation will not change. The wicked will remain wicked. The righteous will remain righteous. So, the options are spare the city for the sake of the righteous or destroy the city. We presume that we will always have a call to repentance before judgment comes. But that may not be the case at all. There may be a time when God simply steps in to judge. God tells Abraham, I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. We see from this, God's judgment is not capricious. It's not arbitrary. God is a truly righteous judge. He is one who judges fairly. Our God does not act on a whim. As a teacher, I found that students generally did not dislike a teacher even if they were strict. But what they hated was an arbitrary teacher, a teacher who let you get by with something one day because they were in a good mood, and then if they happened to be in a bad mood, they jumped all over you. God is not looking for an excuse to jump on us. God doesn't act on a whim, happy one day, uh, upset, angry the next. We know exactly what we're getting in God. And this should be of great comfort to us. We can depend upon the trueness of God's justice. So we see here that God's holiness demands judges or demands judgment. God cannot simply overlook sin. And it took me a long time to understand why this has to be true. We think of human judges. Human judges are required to enforce the law because they are under the law as well. They do not have the option of ignoring the law. But we can't really say that about God because God is not under the law. There is no moral law that stands above God that he must obey. God himself is the moral standard. So, Human judges can't ignore the law simply because they also are under the law. They would not be doing their job if they didn't. But with God, it's a different situation. God cannot simply overlook sin because sin is not the offense itself. Sin is the rebellion behind the offense. Without this rebellion, no matter what the offense is, there is no sin. Sin is the refusal to submit to God. Romans 8, 7. For the sinful nature is hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws and it never will. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile toward God. So we see sin as rebellion against God. And God's holiness requires that such a rebellion not be tolerated. Now, in today's lesson, We've seen several things about this relationship between God and man. First, and most amazing, that such an intimate relationship is even possible. But then to think that God himself is the one who takes the initiative in setting out this relationship and to understand the consequences of not having this relationship, that God's judgment does come. These things are amazing. When we stop and think about it. Let's close with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father. We thank you for your word. For this episode that we've been looking at today. For what it teaches us about you. About how amazing you are. And this relationship Lord. That you are seeking between man and God. And a lot of times. It it really kind of boggles our minds. To think about these things to see such such an awesome salvation that you have provided, to see what you desire from us, that we can be friends with you and in a relationship with you. And I pray that you would help us, Lord, to make this true in our lives, to respond to you, to respond to the initiative that you've taken, and to enter into this type of relationship. We give you the praise in your name. Amen.